Hello and welcome to the BMJ Education Roundup. We're sorry we haven't been around for a while, but we're back to discuss some of the latest articles that have gone up online in the last few weeks. I'm Kate Adlington, one of the clinical editors with the education team and a trainee psychiatrist. And I'm joined today by two of our newer clinical editors, Robin Badley and Kat Chatfield. Welcome, Robin. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name's Robin Badley. I'm a uh, an ST4 gastroenterology and general internal medicine trainee in North London and currently spending the year as the editorial registrar here at the BMJ. And Kat? Hi, I'm Kat Chatfield. I'm a GP and I'm the editor for Quality Improvement. And today we've got a number of topics to discuss. Um, there are three articles. One on postpartum hemorrhage, management and diagnosis. Um, another on indications for anticoagulant and antiplatelet combined therapy. And another on safe handover. So I think we're going to start off with the postpartum hemorrhage. This is a clinical update. And Kat, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about the article? Sure, absolutely. So the clinical update on the diagnosis and management of postpartum hemorrhage takes us through um, managing primary postpartum hemorrhage, which is initially immediately after delivery, and also through uh, managing secondary postpartum hemorrhage, which actually can present up to 12 weeks after delivery. So this is an ongoing concern for for primary care professionals as well. Um, We get an overview of the common causes, the fact that it's... uh, a very sort of significant cause of mortality and the second leading direct cause of maternal deaths in the UK and an absolutely massive cause of, of female mortality worldwide um, which which some of our rapid responses have picked up on uh, and it gives us a sort of helpful mnemonic for um, remembering uh, an algorithm to manage it in the hospital setting uh, and then investigating in the primary care setting. Mm. So obviously I think when people think of postpartum hemorrhage, they do often think about that kind of acute emergency presentation in the first 24 hours. But that's one of the important things about think about this article, that it does think about that kind of longer sort of secondary period up to three months. What was there in there for you as a kind of general practitioner that would be useful for your, your practice in future? I think it was a helpful reminder to um, always try and assess the amount of bleeding that women are presenting with um, when they come and see you in the postpartum period. Um, It's quite difficult. People, if it's their first pregnancy, for example, um, haven't experienced lochia before, so trying to quantify Mm. the amount of bleeding is very difficult. So I think sort of the tip to to look particularly for clots and continuous bleeding is, is fairly helpful. I think for me, in terms of the tips for practice, remembering that you shouldn't be able to palpate the uterus at 14 days that's that's a sort of helpful mental cutoff for um, raising suspicion that that something might not be correct like you know uh, there might be retained products of conception or or you know if the the person is more unwell something like endometritis uh, so I think those for me were the sort of helpful tips to bring into practice uh, and then I think also as well I was sorry I think also made me reflect on taking history for some risk factors for retained products. So reminding me that to ask about manual removal of placenta, uh, prolonged rupture of membranes, pyrexia during labour or or a prolonged labour, which I don't always ask specifically about when I see women presenting with with abnormal bleeding or fever and and pain in the postpartum period. So I think those things are helpful. In general, I think most women who do present in primary care will end up having an ultrasound and and being referred up um, to, to the... Um, obstetric clinic but I think there is women who will 
fall into that gap when you know say at two months post delivery um, I have slight concerns that women who present who may have an undiagnosed problem with with retained products or, or again endometritis um, what the referral pathways are for those women and I think that would be useful for, for readers to go away and, and look into what services might exist um, as they might not be seen to still fall under the care of the obstetricians. Mm. And w- one of the recommendations is around prescribing antibiotics because endometritis is kind of the most common cause. Mm. Um, is that is your impression from the article that that's on suspicion of endometritis or kind of after you've um, referred the person for ultrasound they've had kind of a more formal diagnosis? I think it's fairly tricky because obviously retained products and endometritis will often coexist Um, so I think if you've got a palpable uterus even if you've got a patient with fever um, although you are likely to presume endometritis is the most likely diagnosis um, I think it'd be quite difficult to to not investigate for retained products um, in terms of ruling that out as a sort of um, potential cause I didn't find that completely clear Mm -hmm. in the article, Um, but um, I think in sort of a conservative approach, Mm. you might wish to to both start broad-spectrum antibiotics with the immediate systemic Mm. um, problem and then consider the ultrasound as well. And you you touched on it before, but that was one of the things I was interested about. It was talking about kind of trying to differentiate between normal Lockyer and, you know, when actually you should be concerned or the the person should be concerned. You should be thinking about kind of... um, referring for ultrasound kind of how how do you actually practically have that conversation how do you quantify how do you explain it to the person absolutely um i think that's very difficult i think um you know it, it loki by its nature is quite heavy bleeding um and it, people are often haven't experienced bleeding of that degree before um so when when the authors say continuous bleeding i'm not sure how helpful that is in terms of differentiating um i think clots again quite can be helpful but also you know one might expect you know in a heavy period for example to have clots so that doesn't necessarily help you to quantify whether this is postpartum hemorrhage per se so I think for me the learning would be or on reflection I would say actually you've got to go by how well the patient is generally I think if there are no other problems and they're simply reporting relatively heavy bleeding then I think you know one can be fairly Mm -hmm. cautious and and watch and wait but I think you know if they do have these other symptoms like a fever or you know a palpable uterus um, uterine tenderness abdominal pain any of those um coexisting features I think those are the things that would make me more concerned about mm. about the bleeding so I think the holistic picture of how well the woman is is, is probably the way forward Robin we've obviously been talking quite a lot from a primary care perspective um, just wondering as a kind of acute medic do, do, would you have much to do or would you have anything to do with um, women kind of in a hospital setting who might have um, experienced postpartum hemorrhage or is it really very much kind of a specialist area I think it is very much um, now managed by the obstetricians. Um, it, as as uh, Kat mentioned, um, postpartum hemorrhage can present in very acute ways with um, patients sort of hemorrhaging heavily um, and necessitating a crash crash call. And sometimes as a, the acute medical registrar on call, you may attend those, but normally it's, it's largely taken over quite quickly by the obstetric team who like to lead on these issues now. Yeah. Okay. Um, Can I just want mention yeah, one thing briefly? Course. I just wanted to mention um, for any of our listeners who are, are not based in the UK, as we have said already, maternal um, mortality is a huge problem globally and 
I just wanted to alert people to the WHO safe childbirth checklist, um, which I imagine uh, people working in global settings may be aware of, but um, that has a really sort of helpful um practical approach to addressing um, reducing risks of postpartum hemorrhage in a resource poor setting. Um, so focusing on things like massaging the uterus, starting fluids, keeping the mother warm. Um, and I think um, it's it, it, the sort of evidence suggests it's really important for reducing maternal m- mortality. So just to draw attention to people um, if they feel that this article isn't so relevant for their setting. Okay, that's really useful. So talking about bleeding, that sort of nicely segues into our second article that's um, about, well, links to risk of bleeding, but particularly around prescribing of anticoagulants and antiplatelets. So Robin, do you want to tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, so the, this article is a practice pointer uh, titled Indications for Anticoagulant and Antiplatelet Combined Therapy, uh, written by a clinical pharmacologist. Um, and what it really does, it starts out, out outlining how this is a sort of a common felt difficult area for a number of clinicians and how actually that these drug classes are most commonly implica- implicated in uh, adverse drug reactions in both community and hospital care. Um, it outlines the different scenarios where patients will be co-prescribed both antiplatelet and um, anticoagulant therapy and some of the normal protocols for the duration of both these treatments. the author also outlines some of the evidence for risk and benefit and some also some um, uh, useful calculation scores such as the CHADS-VASC and HASBED score for how one can sort of approach these patients in terms of their risk-benefit of, of um, anticoagulation versus bleeding. Um, it also talks about some more um, rare disorders and myeloproliferative disorders that even the general physician may come across and the indications for treatment in these patients. Mm. So in your experience kind of on acute wards, is this common that you'll see patients who ha- are, you know, have co-prescription and perhaps it's not quite clear why and, and do you have to sort of really have a think about whether both anticoagulants and antiplatelets are required? Yeah, I think it's definitely common, um, particularly with um, sort of more elderly patients who now um, have comorbidities um, and who have been put on. It's, it's not uncommon actually for patient to see a patient who's um, on a number of either antiplatelet or anticoagulant agents, and on admission to hospital, one is not completely sure the indications for them, and nor is the patient particularly if they may they may elderly as well. And so actually, it, it's a really common scenario where it's to do a bit of digging and find out maybe from their GP what the indications were, uh, and also there's very often very poor documentation of the duration of how long these agents are meant to be on for. They may have been. Um, initiated in a different centre by, and you have no access to the clinic letters. So it's a very common scenario to try and tease out um, the, the indication and duration of these agents, particularly in the context of potentially an admission for bleeding. Or, or was there anything in the article that kind of was new to you, or, or made you think might change your practice, or you might think differently about in future? Yeah, so there's um, a number of the things. So it's interesting, I think, uh, common scenarios, um, when you see these patients on triple therapy, I think it's something that always makes clinicians quite nervous, and you immediately see a drug chart that has both sort of warfarin, clopidogrel, and aspirin on, and I think a lot of clinicians would immediately wonder if that's a mistake, but <coughs> um, they're quite clear that there is um, guidance on this, that those patients um, with non-valvular AF um, 
who have also had an acute coronary syndrome and a PCI um, are meant to have um, triple therapy for the initial phase that's sort of four or six weeks after the procedure and then there's almost a sort of step down process where they remain on dual therapy for 12 months before um, at the end of that year going back onto the normal secondary prevention so I think actually that just gives some people a bit more sort of confidence that actually there is rationale for that approach um, I think the area that um, is still difficult to people and which interestingly in this article um, they are reluctant to give very sort of um, strict advice is with regard to patients being treated for venous thromboembolism um, who are also on uh, antiplatelet agents and what's clear from this is there doesn't seem to be particularly hardline guidance Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, comments with regard to considering stopping antiplatelet agents um, whether uh, they should continue with anticoagulants long term um, after the uh, unprovoked event so I think that's something that actually you see a lot in clinical practice as well where one the general physician may think that there's guidelines out there and that they need to seek sort of um, specialist advice but actually there isn't huge amount of guidance and I think it probably still remains a, a clinical judgment in, in those patients. Yeah, it certainly seemed to me reading it kind of there is that inconsistency where it seemed quite helpful with the primary and secondary um, prevention of cardiovascular disease that you know you consider antiplatelet but if there's another indication for oral anticoagulant that trumps the aspirin unless in very high uh, risk for coronary events but then it's, it's different with the um, DVT or venous thromboembolism that you would continue the oral anticoagulant and the antiplatelet, like yeah. you say. And, and you, with with this area, you can see how it could become very confusing for um, for, for um, clinicians in, in any setting. And I think that's actually um, mirrored in, um, you know, that this, this article has had quite a few rapid responses, you know, which is great that people, um, you know, are reading and engaging but also it reflects the fact that there is some uncertainty around it and, and it perhaps does provoke quite a bit of anxiety um what is that your experience cat kind of what what's this raised what's the article raised for you yeah absolutely i think um i read the article and i just felt oh my gosh this is all really confusing um thank goodness for that infographic which i'm gonna have to print out and have on my desk because actually you know you do have to treat all these patients on a case-by-case basis and i think it's often very difficult when um i was reflecting that guidelines exist for one thing like secondary prevention and and another thing so you know prevention of stroke and atrial fibrillation and it's that intersection of those things in practice which is also always so difficult um especially as robin was saying in the increasingly elderly population with with multi-morbidity um i think a useful reminder i mean i, I sort of feel fairly happy using the hasbled and the you know chasvas too so i think a useful reminder to to use the scores to to help with that um clinical decision making where the, as you said the guidance is not ultra clear but you know there is a significant element of judgment so remember to use those scores to help with the judgment um i think for me the the key reminder even though we all know that um, aspirin as anticoagulant therapy for AF is 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 very outdated now. I think I still feel like I see a significant number of patients who are on aspirin monotherapy for um, atrial fibrillation. So just to kind of remind ourselves that the aspirin uh, is 
to be used as an antiplatelet agent, but mm. but not as an anticoagulant. And, and just to kind of, you know, when you're thinking about having those different therapies, reminding yourselves which ones are antiplatelet, which ones are anticoagulant, and and to sort of make a judgment as to which of those functions is more important. Um, I think the other helpful thing for me was the reminder that there's significant crossover in the pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of what the one in five, the twenty percent. Um, so thinking actually, um, if you are, for example, giving an anticoagulant for atrial fibrillation, um, even though those patients are likely to have be a significant proportion who need secondary prevention, that actually they are gaining some benefit f- from the anticoagulation as well. Um, so I think that was quite sort of reassuring, and I think that will help in discuss- discussions with patients about risk. Um, and you know, what's the bigger risk? Is it the bleeding? Is it the falls? Is it um, is it stroke? Um, so I think that that I particularly found that a useful construct for me and I think that's a really important point that you make at the end there about how it's using the Chad's VAS score and the Hasbred score but in to have a conversation and and how you communicate that actually with the person so that they're involved in that decision making you know you can communicate the risk but ultimately it's them making the decision as well um in your experience Robin, how how often does that happen and how does that work in in sort of a hospital setting do you do, do you feel that that kind of patient is involved in that kind of um, uh, decision making around I think it's probably quite variable and probably made more difficult by the fact that um, there's even confusion within the sort of clinician community about what that level of risk is Mm. Um, I mean I I was even thinking about this one of the paragraphs is looking at um, the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease in patients and talking about whether you should continue antiplatelet agents uh, alongside anticoagulants uh, whether when there's an indication and the guidance here in the article is that um, uh, in patients with stable coronary uh, artery disease um, who have had an additional indication for oral anticoagulation it's recommended that they're prescribed oral anticoagulant monotherapy unless they're at very high risk for coronary events and I think the general physician wouldn't always be sure about how to stratify that risk and I think one of the questions um, often is is um, is there some guidance for general physicians from the cardiology team is sort of what constitutes high risk coronary events after they've had intervention is it all to do with the nature of the stent is it due to how long the stent's been in um, and when would when would they like general physicians to seek their advice on whether they think antiplatelet agents? So I, I've worked before in a um, anti uh, as an SHO and an anticoagulation sort of follow up clinic, um, and it's really common where um, patients wondering whether they should still be taking their aspirin clopidogrel, and um, consultants will vary on whether they think you should call the original cardiologist and ask them whether that's the case. And I expect that a lot of those conversations are unnecessary, but um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in that area. And also where you are. When you're in an acute hospital, you might feel more enabled to contact, you know, yeah. bleep the cardio reg and ask for that advice. How about in primary care cap? Do you feel that supports there or where where would you go to if you did have questions? I, I absolutely agree with Robin. That was something that I reflected on as well. Like, how do you quantify that risk at that stage? And and I find that um, in the first twelve months after a, a you know PCI, it's very clear what the guidance is. It's you know X Y Z triple therapy for four months and then dual therapy. But it's that twelve month cut off when you're suddenly supposed to be making a decision about what's more important: is it the antiplatelet or anticoagulant, or you know should you have the risk of continuing dual therapy? Um, and there's often little guidance contained in the in the discharge letter, or, and patients are often not not then still being seen by the cardiologist. 
ecologist so um that's not a very helpful answer but but it does i mean that's one of the things that comes out in the article that actually and and you touched on that at the beginning robin is that it's there, there needs to be a review and at some point you know someone needs to revisit whether you know the indications are still there and but also who's who's responsible for that is it the original prescriber as is the case i imagine often it does get put back to general practice um you know if someone is on you know dual triple therapy should they have you know an annual review to um to review um whether the indication is still valid yeah absolutely and i think those decisions are often being made in primary care um and i think the risk is that you fail to to bring patients back at 12 months so you fail to take the opportunity to to stop an agent where you can safely stop an agent and reduce their risk uh, so I think that's obviously a concern um, and then yes having the kind of um, information you need to make that decision and, and whether obviously um, the practicalities of having all of those patients followed up in a cardiology outpatient clinic is, is tricky um, but whether at the time of initial PCI there might be more guidance available for the general physician who might see them in the hospital or the general practitioner um, to say in 12 months time we suspect their major risk will be either atrial fibrillation or and the need for anticoagulation or it will be for secondary prevention because of xyz unmodifiable risk factors and actually they are likely to need um, you know antiplatelet therapy is their main um, that's the main concern for them and then again what the patients think mm, yeah. and the risks they want to take So I think that might be a good point to move on to our third article because we've been talking about sort of communication and handover between sort of secondary and primary care um, and so as I say that leads nicely on to our um, third article uh, which was an essentials article um, titled Safe Handover and it was by a group of authors who are all researchers in quality and safety and patient safety in healthcare based in the Netherlands and they've um, produced a, a nice concise evidence-based kind of sort of summary of the current um, research out there around handover um, handover in, in healthcare settings um, and they briefly discuss why handover is important and particularly highlighting that miscommunication during handovers is sort of a leading um, a leading cause of um, adverse events um, that can result in death or serious injury to patients um, and go on to think about sort of what best practices in terms of handover, uh, thinking about WHO guidance around the SBAR technique and then give it just giving sort of quite practical techniques about how um, clinicians, um, the MDT can do handover better both. And this is what I thought was interesting because when I think of handover, I often immediately think about sort of a hospital setting, the handover between the night team and the day team. Um, but it, they also focus on the handover between sort of hospital and community settings. And really importantly, um, handover between medical team and patient. Um, and for me, that was a, a kind of an interesting conceptual idea, which um, doesn't immediately, immediately spring to mind, but is obviously incredibly important um, when you think of handover. Um, so, Kat, what, what, what sort of were some of the important learning points for you from this article? I think 
you know, being in the patient safety area, I think handover is a, an ongoing, uh, very strong theme. So I was really pleased to see this article. Um, I think my reflections on it, um, there's always concern about the transition of care from, from hospital to primary care. Um, so I you know, was welcoming any kind of guidance on how to improve that communication. And I think to think about how the written communication is, is structured. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting hospital physicians who, who may never have spent any time in primary care and their training to sort of try and think about about um, what it's like being in that information vacuum. But then equally, which wasn't really covered in this article, was was how um, GPs can improve their communication when handing over patients to the hospital. So um, either, you know, phoning for advice or phone referral, written referral in emergencies. And actually, I think, I don't think GPs are very familiar with the SBAR um, structure, which I, I think has got fairly good traction in, in hospital care these days, is my impression. So actually, I was thinking, well, how could I use SBAR in my own practice when, for example, running ringing the cardiology reg for advice about anticoagulants um so i think that was that was something that i might think about sort of developing um I think the other thing for me, I, I like the idea of the um, personalised discharge letter for patients and actually whether at the, my sort of impression at the moment from my practice is it tends to be one document, you know, with copies sent every which way, one to the patient, one to the GP. Um, and actually the kind of information that the GP needs might be quite different to the way that information should be framed for a patient. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps... You know, administrative workload is a huge problem in general practice. So I think having one document that fits all might do a patient a disservice if it's overly brief and jargony. However, it can also do general practitioner a disservice if there's a lot of excess kind of information to wade through to try and get to the key learning points. So that made me reflect on whether actually there should be two separate documents, you know, discharge handover letter to the patient and a separate one uh, to general practice, which I understand is more work for the hospital team. It was just sort of made me reflect on, "Mm, I wonder what would be the benefits of that. Um, And I suppose my other reflection for, for you guys really working in a hospital setting is that I was really interested in the evidence that bedside handovers led to increased patient and staff satisfaction. But my experience in hospital, which is quite a while ago now, is that handovers were getting more formalised, more, you know, hospital at night, everyone in a room away from the patients. Um, and also they, the evidence that a calm area with minimal distractions mm-hmm. helps effective handover, which a bedside environment certainly isn't. So fr- reflections on how do you marry those different bits of evidence and involve patients yeah. and, and just, you know, to throw that back to you hospital practitioners, yeah. really. That's, it's a really interesting point because that's one of the things that I was thinking about kind of reading the article was around actually my experience of handovers in hospital have been that they've become more centralised, become much more formalised, kind of much longer structured, you know involving computer systems um and and interestingly i mean this article talks about um mdt involvement and whilst you know the handovers that i've seen have become more formal and perhaps involvement of some mdt it's quite rare that you'd have a truly mdt handover sort of from my experience but what robin you're you're sort of have much more experience in the acute medical setting what what have your experiences been? So, so I think, yes, this article throws up a number of different questions. Actually, because of the breadth of it, as, you, as we start off saying, handover takes many different forms. Um, and in a way, um, there is some ver- there are some very important differences between each of those different types of handover and who they involve. Um, and reading this article, 
in a way sort of I suppose I'm coming from the acute medical side um, and I probably have some agendas that maybe aren't met from other sides so it's interesting to hear Kat's concerns um, so where do I start so I think with the um, handover to GPs I think we definitely know there's a real problem there um, and it would be really good to see examples where that's done better I definitely like the idea of um, two different types of discharge summaries but if you spoke to any anyone working in hospitals they would immediately give you the answer that where where is the time for that um, that's not to say it isn't worth exploring how that could be done better and one wonders whether maybe the introduction of things like uh, people like the physicians associates may help be able to provide those different types of information they actually that might free up some time to verbally communicate with GPs so I, there are a small number of patients for whom one is quite inclined to actually give the GP a call before they're discharged to try and explain a complex handover um, and maybe actually with some assistance on the ward environment that sort of thing might become more easy equally the GPs are very busy and even taking those calls at that end is difficult as well um, the second uh, thing I was going to talk about is handover. Uh, I've seen some interesting ways people have gone about handing over back to GPs from clinics um, and on that idea of two different uh, types of handover I've seen um, there's some renal units now who write their clinic letters as if they're speaking to the patient mm -hmm. so they say you've come to clinic today mm -hmm. you with this. that's one interesting way to do it I also worked with a clinician who um, writes their clinic letters as a flow chart uh, to, that prints out so the, GP, the patient and the GP can see if, if X or Y happens it's almost like an algorithm mm. then we're likely to do this mm. um, and found that the patients and GPs very much like that visual um, description of, of what the plan is um, in terms of how hospital handovers are done and um, definitely the authors of this article um, are clear that they think that um, sort of increasing MDT involvement is beneficial trying to involve the patient there are some very practical barriers to that uh, in hospitals so one important one is that nurses and doctors normally start, start their shifts at different times so normally in the evening the nurses start an hour before the doctor handover is so that's quite a um, fundamental barrier to otherwise you end up having two handovers and again that's a sort of time problem um, also increasingly particularly when the hospital gets busy your patients are spread across lots of different wards and I think that makes the bed to bedside thing take a disproportionately longer amount of time I think the place where maybe this is done best sometimes is the intensive care unit the bed to bedside handover and the MDT are involved and that's maybe just by the nature of how the ward is structured um, I think so. Uh, just to butt in, sorry, it's also done well in obstetrics. I mm. I find as well, um, where often the shifts are designed to coincide, mm. and you do tend to have a room, or in my experience, it's been a room handover and then a bed to bed mini ward round. Mm. Um, so um, yeah, I, I know you haven't worked in that section no. of the hospital, but I think I mean that that raises another interesting issue because I think the other thing I was going to talk um, talk about is what clinicians' views are with regard to involving patients in handover, and I think. Um, it's there's lots of advantages to it in terms of the patient sort of almost giving you a brief bit of information about the clinical state which can be really useful and also probably seed in in the incoming doctor's mind exactly what's going on better than a sort of faceless handover I think there are some elements where clinicians say there is elements of the care that they don't feel confident talking about in front of patients and actually they wouldn't want to have to sort of censor what they're saying for that reason so especially around kind of acute risk where yeah. you're I don't know you, you know there are risks which can be communicated to the patient or need to be communicated to the patient but it I don't know it would be you wouldn't want to scare or yeah. or alarm in the way you know you might 
you might discuss in a kind of much more... Uh, Until the pictures come clear during yeah. a, an acute admission, I think sometimes um, the patient being privy to all the different thought processes of what people are investigating isn't always as helpful as some people may think. And so it makes you think whether there, they, one should have two different types of handover. So as you say, like maybe an obstetrics, one done uh, off the ward in a, in a quiet room with good access to the IT amongst the team and then a brief walk around the ward. So that's another way to potentially approach it. Um, and I think uh, uh, probably most people would say that the barrier to a lot of this good practice is time. Um, mm. But um, there's a lot of arguments to say that there's a lot of time saved by doing these things mm. very well. So I don't think that should immediately be a reason to not explore ways to, to sort of practice better. And, and it's interesting because you've identified kind of very structural organisational barriers there. So, you know, the, the fact in obstetrics it's easier because your patients are nearly always co-located mm. um, you know with your where your team are based mm. so you have a very discreet you know you know uh, sort of um, antenatal ward delivery ward postnatal ward often you know um, either actually co-located or very close to each other in a hospital and in IT, you've got much fewer patients yeah. you know who and much more many more staff you know mm. a, a nurse per patient who's able to you know who is standing at the side of the bed kind of waiting for the handover yeah. or, or waiting to give it so whereas you know for, for in the acute medical setting that sort of absolutely you know the distribution of patients all over the hospital with many different different teams overlapping so the medical team may not may have ownership as it were of those group of patients but you know very different nursing teams or you know maybe then different other MDT members um, sort of dropping in and out um, I think that can be very difficult. Just from a practical level thinking about kind of what tools you use to hand over because I think some hospitals are you know do you have like hospital night will have kind of computer systems and it's very formalised other places I've worked you know you turn up clutching your bit of paper and you know are expecting to you know write down names um you know instructions that you know are to last you to the next morning and then they get handed over again obviously lots of room for um for uh you know possible error but also kind of practically that is a little a bit it can be more easy it can be more i don't know practical kind of to do so and there's lots of structures around handover, isn't there? Because I think we're going to go on shortly to talk about ward rounds, which is, I think is important. But for me, in general practice, I um, would rarely ever formally hand over a patient um, to the out-of-hours team or, um, you know, to a to the ambulance service. Um, but I would be expected to contribute to a shared record um, in which I make it very clear in a written form what what my plan is and you know what the expectations are for that patient, particularly in a palliative care setting, for example. Um, so you know, reflecting on how your your usual clinical notes are a form of always a form of handover. Um, and for me, as a, a locum GP, moving from surgery to surgery, making sure that um, <clears throat> my my clinical notes capture my thought processes my assumptions about what's going to happen you know when to deviate from the plan um so i think it's it's not just the moment of handover but it's the, the constant kind of dialogue that you have around a patient but then also making sure that your colleagues in different settings will have access to those notes because you know you you, you might have done that really good formulation in your gp practice and, and the person ends up in a and e later that night and it's really you know someone doesn't have access and I think we have certainly in you know mental health settings we have a totally different electronic system again to you know to the acute you know hospital and just how that information gets shared when the computer systems aren't talking you know is really 
it, it, it make, it's another barrier. And then, then you come back to the patient as being the kind of centre of their mm. own care and the kind of repository of information about their own care and how we can create structures which en- enable and empower patients to do that without having some of those negative um, knock-on effects that you were talking about, like, you know, unnecessary anxiety or mm. fear and mm-hmm. um, and recognising that you want to share those things with patients, but like you said Robin different types of communication you want to be able to have a, a quick and efficient very information rich handover between a group of professionals um, and you you want to have a very um, open sort of time rich kind of discussion with patients and you know finding ways with handover discharge yeah. to have those kind of different levels of, of information sharing yeah. is very challenging <laughs> And just thinking about the written communication, the discharge summaries again, you know, maybe it's if if it's not time to have two separate documents, maybe it's that there's, you know, a a box at the bottom that's, you know, what these are the important things you need to know, you know, this is here are the key points, quick points if, you know, to take from, you know, to think about in the next few days or this is when you need to see your next health professional. So just thinking about ways that you can communicate that information quickly that doesn't take too long mm. um, but is is much more patient focused yeah I love the idea of the flow chart I think that's mm. that's really helpful certainly for me you know I think as you sort of visual and structural aids are really mm. important if you look at the infographics that we produce with the articles like the ability to visualize information in different ways other than big chunks of text yeah. is really helpful so yeah. you know things for me like putting certain things in bold or certain things in bullet points you know things in a box yeah. any way of like emphasizing some some critical information points mm. um yeah maybe we have moved to the pictorial yeah. handover <laughs> we started touching on there um another article that we wanted to discuss that links to this safe handover um, and it was an opinion piece that Robin actually published this week um, that was around uh, ward rounds which you know we've sort of touched on anyway because they're a kind of kind of regular handover between team and, and patient um, Robin tell us a little bit about your opinion piece and um, what sort of you were saying and arguing in it. Um, so essentially it was in part a response to Matt Morgan who's a, an intensivist working in Cardiff who had written a piece um talking about really describing the ward round environment and how um, his ability to make cli- clinical decisions is sort of impaired by by the sort of current state of play. Um, and I think I would expect that his article rang true with, with many people. Um, and I think there's wide recognition that um, ward rounds at the moment are not practiced as well as they could be. And there are probably some specialties where it's done better than others. And that's down to factors in terms of sort of patient load and nature of um, their clinical problems. I would say probably the area where people struggle most is, is the sort of high patient load, inpatient general medical ward rounds. And um, I started off really just by ex- sort of explaining that I think they're quite chaotic at present um, and that actually um, that chaos leads to a lot of sort of knock-on problems which maybe aren't either properly appreciated or quantified. Um, My argument really being that um, chaotic, fast, disorganised ward rounds that don't involve all the necessary people, such as the MDT, that maybe don't have time to access all the necessary information, probably result in uh, over-treatment, so over-investigation, definitely um, too many subspecialty referrals for clinical questions that could normally be answered within the team if one had the time to sort of debate them and then had access to all the necessary information and also these hurried 
poor handovers to GPs where a lot of clinical issues remain unresolved despite them being in hospital and it's sort of slightly glossed over and the patient sent home. And presumably also, sorry to interrupt, but perhaps less than ideal experiences for patients as well? Oh, of course, yeah. So all of, all this essentially knocks on uh, the knock-on effects are that patients get worse care um, and also that probably clinician experience of them leaves particularly the juniors quite disillusioned um, and I suppose what I was arguing in a way is I think this is something that everyone m- many people recognise but the progress on it in the last few years has probably been quite poor and I would say things many people may argue things are getting worse rather than better and so um, what I wanted to maybe explore is whether um, actually one could demonstrate that there's huge financial savings to be made which sometimes carries more traction than other arguments in healthcare um, for us to actually have um, a ward round that gives the clinicians time to spend with the patients to discuss things properly um, to sort of weigh up uh, the pros and cons of clinical decisions within the team has time to write a high quality discharge summary to the GP so that things people don't come back to hospital with the same problems that they came with the previous time um, and the article was a sort of an open question as to whether we think we need to trial this or whether it's something that will just evolve sort of naturally. So would, in kind of on that basis, would the idea be that you have these kind of longer, more thoughtful, kind of high qu- higher quality ward rounds, but perhaps on a less frequent basis? So you make up, you know, although that is more time, maybe you would then kind of save the time on other days or... Or does it depend? Also, does it depend on the setting? So, you you know, do different settings, even within acute care, warrant different kind of formats of ward round? I think that's a, a really good question to debate. And um, there's almost a sort of um, sort of ingrained habit that we think we need to see every patient every single day, almost just even whether it's necessary. I was going to say, I've definitely, I've, <laughs> I've, I've had jobs in certain wards where we would ha- do two consultant ward rounds a day. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it, it depends, but then, you know, and you, you have other jobs where you have one or two consultant ward rounds a week. So yeah. it's, you know, there's obviously rationale for that, but it is interesting seeing that kind of variety of practice. Exactly. And I, I think there's a lot of sort of comp- competing agendas as to what dictates how frequently we see patients and I think something I've touched on in the article is a lot of this is probably driven by the rapid discharge agenda where um, there's a lot of pressure on hospitals to free up beds and so um, having a patient seen as a sort of tick box activity that someone's gone by their bed and written in the notes is sort of all that, all that matters in some respects uh, and if they're seen twice a day then there's two opportunities to discharge more patients um, and I think in a way my guess is that there's although that's on the surface of it that seems like a good way to try and sort of improve efficiency in hospitals that actually it's probably an oversimplistic way to approach the care of inpatient uh, patients uh, and actually maybe a less frequent but much more thorough and thought through approach to looking after patients in hospitals will actually paradoxically uh, reduce the amount of sort of care we we end up unnecessarily delivering. Kat with your quality improvement hat on I imagine there's lots out there around kind of ward rounds work what 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 have you heard and seen before that? I mean I think you referred to some of it in your article Robin like the I think the RCP uh, toolkit for ward rounds um, or whether it's Matt's article I can't recall at the moment but I think um I think I think the sort of one size fits all approach is something that I always have a sort of problem with. I think um you know what, what 
different types of ward rounds for different settings and different patients will need different types of ward rounds at different points during their kind of care journey so I suppose you know um, for example doing board rounds rather than ward rounds so actually you know being selective in um, using your resources so which patients need to be seen by which doctor at which level of seniority um, you know at this particular point in time you know what are the critical decisions that need to be made and do they need to be made um you know, on the basis of information that you require from the computer or, you know, bedside. And then, you know, how do you create a separate space for patients and families to have the time to ask questions that, that may not be exactly contemporaneous with the kind of the medical ward round and the medical agenda. So I think in some ways more complexity rather than less complexity I suppose is what what I'm really interested in is I think we kind of often try and find a quite reductionist model a bit like SBAR with handover um, but actually appreciating that um, a bit more of a thoughtful approach to to sort of analysing what the needs are of the patient what the needs are of the team what the needs are of the system and how you try and balance all of those that's that's not very helpful but a kind of philosophical yeah, approach really definitely you mentioned board round and that's my experience is that that was the optimal time to actually get true MDT involvement because you could actually define you know a short period of time where you say we're actually you know we're going to quickly go through the list of patients just to think about what the kind of issues are that we need to deal with you know more kind of more extensively today but that's when you'd kind of really that's how that's really the only way how you, you would get kind of a full kind of be able to get a full complement of people on a ward or whatever involved to have a discussion because you know as soon as you turn it into a kind of a full ward round where you're going you know you're going around bedside to bedside it's much more difficult to be able to you know ask nurses other you know OTs other other healthcare professionals to kind of stay with you for that full amount of time so it, it's also about how you know you're talking about extra time how do you involve the MDT in 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 that as well in the kind of the most efficient way yeah I think it throws up lots of um, interesting questions about the idea of efficiency um, and I think one of the reasons, so to take a very specific example, like t- nurses being present in ward rounds, I think there's a general example and appreciation that nurses are very busy um, and therefore actually having them step aside from what they're busy doing to, to be with the doctors as they go around the patients in their bays, the, the, there isn't enough time in the day to afford that. I think my personal uh, opinion on that is that I would be very surprised if it's more efficient for that to be the case um, and actually having everyone there at one place so that those those problems that arise whilst you consult with a patient on a ward round are addressed at the time you get the really crucial information from the nurse who's been looking after them that morning um, and that also the plan is then communicate, communicated at that point rather than there being another layer of work where people are running around trying to tell the necessarily involved people be that the nurse notice what what the plan is um and so i think i think a lot of our current approaches this idea of efficient inpatient care need to be challenged mm-hmm. um and a, the classic example is to do with with probably the mdt being present during the ward round consultation mm-hmm. um and that can be done in different ways it doesn't have to necessarily be done on every occasion but um these things i think um are very worthwhile pursuing mm-hmm. robin what you're saying about efficiency I think is is really important you know because there's a debate in general practice about longer appointments and actually you know Mm. do longer appointments actually save time in the long Mm. run because they enable you to 
have a better quality of interaction with the patient and reach some more genuinely shared decisions, get some paperwork done at the same time. And sort of it's a slightly parallel mm. debate, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly the evidence is a bit mixed, but it, it does seem to suggest that it, it's it's not doesn't increase workload overall but possibly doesn't reduce the number of times mm. patients attend and i suppose it sort of depends on which pay again you know you were talking about a more nuanced approach certain patients you know you can do everything you know need to do have the discussion come to kind of a satisfactory conclusion for everyone in 10 minutes others you don't but how do you know when the person walks into the room that that you know absolutely mm. what, what that time's going to be well my own personal <laughs> opinion is that we should let patients have more control over yeah, how long their pa- their appointments are yeah. because you know if i go to the hairdresser i don't just get given a slot i get yeah. told well do you want a cut or a blow dry you know yeah. restyle so you know my personal opinion is that patients are probably pretty good at saying i need five minutes and is anyone i need 20 that? minutes i don't know i'd mm. love to i'd love to try it well, if anyone <laughs> out there is doing something like that yeah, let, let us know yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for this week and um, thanks for joining us all the articles that we've been discussing are available on- online at thebmj.com that's bye from me kate bye from me kat yeah, bye from me robin you didn't wave <laughs> <laughs>